Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Once upon a time, the CIA and the FBI fought America's enemies at home and abroad. Now, as events in recent years have made clear, they've become captured by a kind of what I call enemy within, uh, which is the ideology and agenda of cultural Marxism. The CIA and the FBI, along with the rest of the intelligence community, have become essential players in a growing surveillance state, attacking its political enemies and spying on ordinary American citizens, even parents who push back against the radical teachings of cultural Marxism in America's public schools. Now, these are strong charges, but they've been thoroughly documented in a revealing new book by J. Michael Waller called Big Intel, uh, how the CIA and the FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. Mike is, uh, Mike's been on here many times, and it's great to have you back, Mike. Uh, and we've covered some of this in, in brief, but now we'll go a little deeper on this particular topic. Mike's a senior analyst at the Center for Security Policy, where he concentrates on propaganda, political warfare, psychological warfare, and subversion. So, Mike, welcome back. It's great to be back with you, Bill. How did we get here? What's the history of your book? It's all in your book, but um, you also have a very interesting ending to the book I want to get to, which is how what we do about it. It seemed like it started all of a sudden when we just became aware that something was wrong, but couldn't really put our fingers on it. But it began a century ago, and it wasn't even aimed at us. It was a Soviet active measure aimed to collapse Weimar Germany after World War I. And when they, they did a great job of that, but then the people who did that came to the United States to collapse us after Hitler threw around of Germany. So this is something that's been percolating in our system in a way so subtle that we often didn't notice it, and then we grew to accept it. And then all of a sudden we wondered, what's happened to our country? So in the 30s, in the 20s, this started in Germany, it also started in Italy, didn't it, with this guy Antonio Gramsci? Yes. The, uh, the Marxist theorist, and they concluded that the idea of materialism, money, the proletariat, for, you know, throwing off the shackles of the bourgeoisie, um, they concluded the proletariat were never going to rise up. They really wanted refrigerators and cars. <laughs> and it was hard to radicalize them. And so they switched to something they, we now, we're now calling cultural Marxism. And that's when they, they, they had an explicit strategy, as you write, as I understand it, to take over cultural institutions, the universities to begin with, and then all the rest of them. Right. And this was, this was Marx's original idea. So before he wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, he was writing about cultural warfare, how to destroy uh, German... Uh, nationhood, because Germany was various different states that had their own identities. How to destroy that? How to destroy the, the uh, Western ethic behind that, Judeo-Christian values? He was born Jewish, raised as a Christian, ended up being neither, but he wanted to destroy everything. So 
the nuclear family. All of these things Marx had wanted to pit everybody against each other so that something else could come in to fill that, some sort of what he later called the dictatorship of the proletariat. So this was a dictatorship of cultural revolutionaries. That didn't work for him at that time, so he abandoned that and wrote the Communist Manifesto. But this is the original Karl Marx that we're seeing, and it was revived a century ago and deployed against the West. And the idea there was to destroy everything, and you read Marx in vain for a very good picture about what he wants to replace it with. And so, the, you know, the big word I learned was nihilism, and which means just a, a plan to destroy everything without any real interesting way of a vision of what happens next. Is that about, is that about right? Is yeah. that what we're up against? Yeah, nihil is Latin for nothing. Okay. So it's nothingism. Okay. So if you can't convince people to embrace all the complex and, and raving aspects of the dialectics of Marxism, who wants to waste their time on that? You don't want to spend any time reading that stuff. No, no. It's fun to smash things. <laughs> it's fun to wreck things. It's fun to do what you're not supposed to do. And yeah. if we all go by our human impulses without any moral guidelines like Ten Commandments or laws or values, then we can do what we want, and it's fun. And people who are saying that we can't do that are oppressing us. The beliefs are oppressing us. The laws are oppressing us. The, the dead white men who invented these things are oppressing us. God is oppressing us. Family is oppressing us. Let's throw it all off and wreck everything. Well, Mark, like a lot of intellectuals, never took responsibility for anything. He didn't support his family. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. He kept by Engels. Engels. Eng, Marx. Engels. Engels was the rich guy. Right. And he kept. Uh, he he took care of Marx's uh, economic problem. Right. And Marx never worked a day in his life. Neither did Engels. He was okay. a trust fund right. baby. Also, so his are, dad made all the money. These are people that have got a great. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's 150 years ago. I guess we got to fast forward. So these these ideas are percolating and and they began to take root in the 20s and then. It, it moved to the United States in the 30s, and you write about the, the Frankfurt School, which started in, in uh, Germany, Frankfurt, Germany, moved to, what, Columbia College in, in New York? Right, and the teacher's college that's there, so what a perfect place to teach the teachers. Okay, so they had that in mind, taking over education from the get-go. Right, that was, that was the whole idea, because you're not going to get German workers to rise up. They were being too well paid, and as you said, they wanted their cars and their refrigerators. The same with American workers. So how do you, how do you overthrow American society if you're not going to have a Bolshevik-style revolution? You have to find another way. And the way is to get into people's heads so they don't even realize they're being indoctrinated. And they even think it's absurd that they're being indoctrinated, let alone what type of indoctrination it is. Well, so their values are attacked. And they go along, most people just go along to get along because society is, you know, quote, changing. Well, there are drivers to change. So we look at who these drivers were and where they originated. So, you know, where we're going with this is how this has infected the FBI and the CIA and the other, the other intelligence agencies. And the way they got to this was through the universities where they're teaching the ideas of cultural Marxism. It's basically, the, can you simplify it, something like it's oppressed versus the oppressor? It's always looking for an oppressor and to fight against the oppressor. So in this case, it's anything in Western culture that is oppressive to whatever grievance group deems it to be oppressive. It must be destroyed. 
all the memories of them must be destroyed in history, all the names and statues and ideas and philosophies, because it's all oppressive. So this is where diversity, equity, and inclusion come in, because you don't need honest competition anymore. You just need to say, you know, like they did in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, help, help, I'm being repressed. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. Yeah, but it's that same kind of logic that they have. And, and yeah. so, so, so the help, help, I'm being repressed, though, is very serious. It's nothing to laugh at nowadays because they really want to destroy everything yeah. they think that's oppressive, and that is everything. And the other piece was you divide, you forget about the, the, the working class. You again, put, you put people into identity groups by sex, by race, by, you know, whatever category, and those are the oppressed and the oppressed. And then, but the oppressors can never be redeemed. And that's where we get into the critical race theory and the, the idea of whiteness. And that if once you're white, you can never be not white and you're, you're structurally racist and therefore, we need to turn over all our worldly goods to, uh, to the oppressed. Yeah. There is nothing you can do as a white person to not be racist. You can't no. atone. You cannot atone. You cannot atone. You're doomed. And further, this is all about power. There's no other moral code of power, power and money. Power and money. Okay, so how did, this end, how did we end up with the FBI which I think of as J. Edgar Hoover initially in its culture and the CIA. I think before that was the OSS with Wild Bill Donovan that did it during World War II. How did, when did the germ take, you know, when did the virus get enter the body and how has this morphed over the last uh, 75 years? J. Edgar Hoover saw it coming. He was a 25-year-old Justice Department official in 1920. He was head of a unit called the Radical Division. And his job was to spy on the anarchists. They'd assassinated President McKinley. They were responsible for a whole lot of bombings and other attempted assassinations across the country. So it was his job to round up the Marxists, the communists, the radical socialists, and the anarchists and send them back to Russia. That was his job. And he, he lived like a warrior monk all of his life. It was just him and his mission. He was a complete workaholic. So he began as a 25-year-old doing this and seeing and understanding what communism was. So the U.S. Communist Party had only been founded the year before. So it was his job to know who they were, what their ideology was, what their end game was, and how they operated. So since day one, he's been, he had been warning the American public time and time again in speeches, books, uh, working with Hollywood, congressional testimony to, to tell us they're, they're here to infiltrate our systems. Our he warned about education. He warned about universities. He warned about infiltration of churches, labor unions, Hollywood. Another big place where, cult where cultural Marxism has spread was through entertainment, through music and TV and the movies and, and uh, literature. He was warning about this the whole time. That's why the left hated him so much. Well, yeah, he was made, he was caricatured, and the, you know, the, all, then the, then the later Hollywood movies had him portrayed. You know, they made a, a big deal out of the fact he was supposedly gay, and they made him a, a figure of fun. But when he died, he his approval rating among Americans was still roughly 70, 75 percent. He was he was a beloved figure. He was he, one of the most popular, trusted people in America. But the 
Infection occurred also in the F, in the and and we I want to get I want to bring us up to the present day, but I think it 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 once you begin seeing the roots of this, it, it's hard not to see it. FDR's administration was filled with people like that that followed this philosophy. They learned it at Yale. They learned it at, at uh, the other Ivy League universities, and they came in to the administration infected with this uh, with these bad ideas. Right, and, and as organized cadres, because a lot of them were Communist Party members. So we tend to think of the Communist Party as some caricature of what it really was, but its purpose was to be an organized, disciplined cadre that was vertically integrated under a military-type command and control from Moscow as, an, as a semi-underground movement in the United States to infiltrate, not to win votes in, as a Communist Party candidate in elections, even though they ran candidates, but it was to infiltrate the nerve centers of organizations. You know, who's, who are the couriers? Who op, who, who's the editor of a publication? Who is the speechwriter? Who is the policymaker? And this is where their, their influence sat, as well as being the main uh, structure for Soviet espionage in the United States. So they're stealing secrets on the one hand, but more importantly, influencing on another and then bringing in their fellow members and then fellow travelers who were not members but sympathizers, bringing them into position. So when you have Roosevelt setting up the New Deal, vastly expanding the size and the power of central government, that's a lot of federal employees now on the dole. And so a lot of the party members went into the federal government through every imaginable agency. So people who were basically unemployable, whose mission was to subvert us, ended up being funded by the American taxpayer so they could continue their subversive work. So this infiltration of federal government, I now think, you know, we live in the D.C. area, and I think about the fact that probably 95% of the people working the federal government uh, did not vote for Donald Trump. And they're, they're on the left, and they support the, the left agenda, and they support in, implicitly the, the, you know, the advancing these ideas of cultural Marxism. But this started back in the 30s. Yes. And, but then there, another thing that happened in the 30s you write about in the book, which is interesting, is that the OSS, which is our equivalent of the Secret Service during World War II, was stood up by a guy named Donovan, Bill, Wild, Bill, Don, Wild Bill Donovan, who won, he won the uh, Medal of Honor twice? He was an astonishing In World warrior. War I? Yeah. What, tell, me, what, tell, tell his story. Bill Donovan was a, a lawyer, a businessman, very successful. He, uh, he set up the New York National Guard cavalry. He fought Pancho Villa's forces in Mexico. Then he fought the Germans in World War I in Germany, in France, rather. He got the name Wild Bill because he had been he was shot and badly wounded in the knee. His knee was basically taken out, and he wouldn't leave the battlefield until all of his men were safe. So he was an amazing person. He then went uh, on uh, on uh, trips to Europe to see how the Bolsheviks worked and how the Communist International worked and how that would affect American business, both the United States and business abroad. He went to East Asia with his wife for an extended period and saw the Bolsheviks taking over Siberia during the Russian Civil War and came back with policy recommendations to the United States on what needs to be done to stop Soviet expansion 
This was right after World War One. So he he understood it. He, uh, he then, uh, so he, had, he built up an international network of contacts of his own in leadership positions all around Europe and Asia so that when we are about to get into World War II, the United States doesn't have a foreign intelligence service. So President Roosevelt picked him, who was a rival. Roosevelt had been governor of New York before being president, and Donovan ran as a Republican to take his seat. Uh, didn't, didn't make it, uh, but he... So he ended up setting up the wartime intelligence service and was already at loggerheads with J. Edgar Hoover because they, the two had already crossed paths in the Justice Department during the Republican years in the 1920s. But he hired Donovan. Donovan set it up. And that, at that point, uh, this, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with the, the terrific J. Michael Waller, old friend, who's written a terrific book, Big Intel, uh, how the FBI and the CIA went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. Donovan staffed the OSS with, the, with anybody who he thought had talent without regard to really background checks or anything. And he ended up staffing them with a lot with, 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 with men, primarily men from, this, from the Ivy, Ivy League, many of whom had been infected with these ideas of cultural Marxism by their professors who probably were in turn taught by Columbia University. So this whole thing, you begin to see the pattern here of how these ideas and people believe this. So what happened with the OSS? It was successful and then? Well, it was successful at its wartime task of doing really crazy stuff to defeat the Axis. Yeah. He brought in amateurs who didn't know what they weren't supposed to know and, and didn't know what they weren't allowed to do. And they just went ahead and did stuff that everyone said couldn't be done. So My favorite some, kind of person. Incredible. <laughs> a talented amateur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, they did incredible work. Yeah. So his mission was, let's defeat the Nazis, let's defeat Tojo and Mussolini, and then be done with it. Yeah. But J. Edgar Hoover was saying, well, yeah, we can defeat them, but we cannot let Stalin take advantage because he has his own post-war agenda to take us over. Yeah. Who, so Donovan was single-mindedly, let's defeat these Nazis, but he needed people with, from those areas, native people from you know, Germany, Italy, Yugoslavia area, you know, Russia, every place else, who spoke the languages, who might have had personal networks, and who could operate there. But so many of them were Communist Party members, and they were acting as agents of Stalin within the OSS. He didn't really care about it. Most of his biographers glossed this over or missed the point completely. But he said, no, we just have to do this one task. That, though, contaminated our intelligence product because what he brought in on the research side of it, meaning the side to inform the president and the military leaders so they can make their decisions, were so many Communist Party members and people right out of the, literally from the Frankfurt School in Germany, people <laughs> like Herbert Marcuse, who had been a Comintern man, for Stalin. Oh, I didn't know that. Now he's in the OSS. Now, the CIA memorializes Marcuse as one of its own original intelligence officers. Well, compounding that challenge for Donovan was that it was the British who encouraged us to set up the uh, OSS. And so William Stevenson, you know, the man called Intrepid, he was, yeah. the, he was in charge of all that for the British in the United States. He delegated setting up the OSS to to uh, Dickie Ellis, his deputy, who Donovan depended on incredibly to set up the OSS. But Ellis was 
a double agent for Stalin. <laughs> so the, the foundations of our intelligence service were completely corrupted from the start, even though it did great things. So, so the whole thing had to be taken apart after World War II. So Roosevelt dies. Truman becomes president. Truman didn't like Hoover, but he listened to Hoover, and he learned about what the OSS had become. So what did he do? He abolished it. He shut it down. He didn't even ask Donovan about it. He just, oh, he didn't. Okay. He okay. shut it down a month after the I think Japanese a, a, surrender. Wasn't Donovan traveling or something? It just he came back and his agency was gone. Didn't bother to tell him. And of course, Truman <laughs> didn't even know about the OSS as vice president for, for all intents and purposes. He knew it existed, but he didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Like he didn't know about the bomb until he became president. So when we think about what to do with the CIA, there is precedent here. Yeah. You could just shut it down. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we'll con I'm getting ahead of our story here. Yeah. So we, so the story we're we're into the 50s and 60s. So we're, we're lead us up towards where we are today. Well, back up a little bit because when when Truman abolished the OSS, he left us with nothing. Okay. No foreign intelligence service, and we needed one. So then the CIA was created a couple of years later, put together with a lot of elements from the old OSS. So so we always need an intelligence service. It's just, you know the type of people who were in it and running it. So we'll get to that in a bit. But what, what happened was a lot of the Stalinist agents in the OSS went into the State Department <laughs> in the early Cold War. And they were, you know, they had it friends in there. Sounds an awful lot like cockroaches. You can't get rid of them. Yeah. yeah. And you have people like Alger Hiss, who was director of policy planning for the State Department yeah. until he was finally unmasked and forced out. And the statute of limitations ran out, so they couldn't get him for spying, so they got him for lying to Congress. But he still, he still has his defenders today. And a lot of these communists, this is the problem, they're nice people. They're fun to be with. <laughs> They'll help you out. They'll help you get jobs. If you'll just shut up about your own opinions or just go along, yeah. they will help you if you show promise. And then you're indebted to them, so you're part of, part of this group that's now cultivated over the years. You leave you leave government service under a scandal because you're a spy, a university will pick you up as a professor so you can teach future diplomats and future intelligence officers. We're seeing that right now with this State Department official accused of being an Iranian agent. And where did he go? He went to Yale. He went He's to a Yale. Professor I was just trying, there <laughs> He's teaching Yale. our future diplomats. What's his name? Robert. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he was a CIA. It was, yeah. he, was, he was totally in the tank for Iran. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it was obvious when they hired it because his parents had worked, uh, you know, they were involved with the whole Iran uh, Revolutionary Guard from the, from the beginning. It's so often obvious. Yeah. The, the, the problematic people are those who say the emperor has no clothes and they, they're saying this guy is an Iranian spy or at least an agent of influence. So the reason we need to talk about this, and it's becoming more of a theme about what I'm doing with this show, is... You know, it, let me do my personal going backward into my days in private equity, working in finance and things like that, not paying attention to this. When you hear these stories about, well, there's communists in the FBI or communists in the CIA, that sort of thing, you think, oh, come on, that's just a conspiracy theory. That's not really happening. You know, just, you know, everything's just fine. Well, it turns out it's not fine. There really are a lot of people doing this and they're infected with these really bad ideas and these bad ideas have now infected uh, pretty much our entire culture. Yeah. And all of us, think of how 
Pardon that riff, but I was, you know. Well, no, I mean, it's true. It's true. It's some of the things that I, that I found that I put in the book, had somebody said it to me five or six years ago, I would have said, you're, you're crazy. Exactly. I think that's the point that we need to make clear. Yeah. What you thought was impossible actually turns out to be true, and you've documented that. Right, and to go, you go to the original documents, the primary sources. Yeah. What did Obama say? What did the CIA director Brennan say? What did Valerie Jarrett say and do? You look, you don't look at what other people said about them. You look at what they said and they did. You know, what did J. Edgar Hoover warn us about since 1920? Was he correct or was he mistaken? I mean, he was right on the mark. So Hoover dies in about 1968, early 70s. Early 70s, 70s yeah. dies. Popularity still sky high. He was replaced by a series of fairly, uh, you know, middle of the road, good guys that just ran the FBI the way Hoover would run it pretty much. It hadn't been politicized much, if any, at all then. When did the FBI begin to get politicized and affected with these ideas? Well, to, there are two different issues here. First, it, had a, it, had a, it performed a political mission for whatever president was in power, starting with Warren G. Harding. So Harding in the early 1924? 20s. In the early, yeah, yeah. Okay. He was a completely corrupt president. Politicians so, haven't changed much. <laughs> no. no, no, no. <laughs> okay. And he, he had Hoover spy on his political opponents in Congress. And then the next couple presidents weren't interested in any of that stuff. Franklin Roosevelt loved it. Not only spy on my opponents, he said spy on my friends too. And, and Roosevelt had some kind of prurient interest, like the juicier the details of the more sordid nature of what was being picked up, the better. So he loved that. So he and Hoover got along really well, even though he was a liberal Democrat and Hoover was, was a Republican. So Hoover was right about communism, but he was not pure as driven snow. He, no. was, he, he loved collecting the dirt on everybody. Yeah, because somebody might be a problem or dangerous or, in his yeah. view, a threat to the Bureau. Yeah. And to this day, the biggest crime anyone in the FBI can commit is to embarrass the Bureau. Now, the thing about the Bureau you point out in the book is that the Bureau was not really created by an act of Congress. It was an executive order or some, not even that at the time. They just said, let's make this agency, and it just appeared, and Hoover was running it. And it still operates on that basis. It's not, a, it's not and it's, therefore, if we wanted to get change the FBI or get rid of the FBI, there's no, there's not a lot of congressional action that needs to be taken. Yeah, the FBI was except not created. That, except that the current director of the FBI, I'm sure, has files on every member in Congress. And his kids and his spouse and everyone yeah. else. Yeah. yeah. Imagine the access he has just through the FBI's tentacles into social media. Oh, yeah. Or a place like Google where they record every keystroke you take when you're using their browser and their products. When did the FBI become, okay, we said they, they were political in the, in the old-fashioned sense, but not ideological. Let me use ideological as a word. When did it become ideological? And is it just the top of the FBI, or is it, is it permeating through the ranks? It became ideological really in the, it started to after 9-11. So you had President George W. Bush tell the brand new FBI director, Robert Mueller, he'd only been on the job for a week, said, make sure the FBI never permits terrorists to attack our citizens again. 
That's a pretty big order for the FBI coming from the president. So this and also sort of a stupid order because you can't do something like that without wrecking all of her civil liberties, which is exactly what happened. But it sounded Thank like you, the right President thing Bush. at the time. It sounded good it, at so the time. So this is what happens in a okay. national emergency yeah. when we have to do something. Yeah. So then more of that doing something was let's create a giant homeland, you know, Department of Homeland Security, and let's merge all of these other security entities pull them out of other departments, pull Secret Service out of Treasury, pull this out of here and this out of there, into this new centralized department. And part of what was protecting us was this was all decentralized before, and it and was already And you point out problem. that was on purpose. I mean, the yeah. idea was to stovepipe all these different agencies so that there wouldn't be any concentration of power in any single hand. Right. And that was on purpose, and it was to keep us freer and, and, and not have one big surveillance state uh, which is in effect what we have now, but that, but then they deliberately changed that. Right. Yeah, this was a bipartisan consensus going back decades. Don't have a giant central intelligence service for all of our intelligence capabilities under one roof, because that can that will threaten our constitutional government. Even Hoover, as powerful as he was, imagine running the bureau for forty-eight years with very few laws to limit what you can do. And with all the stuff you have on the lawmakers who might try to make things problematic for you. Even then, under him, the FBI was decentralized, meaning he would not initiate criminal cases around the country. It would be the local field offices, there are 56 of them now, that would initiate those criminal cases and move them upward. and each. Each special agent in charge of each field office would have direct contact with Director Hoover or whichever other director there was. That all changed after 9-11. So Director Mueller, with an outside consulting firm that also advises the Chinese government, uh, centralized the bureau, put in more than 60 new management positions at the top, two new levels of bureaucracy at the top, to centralize the bureau and create a Department of Homeland Security separate from that, and create an office of the Director of National Intelligence apart from that, who would coordinate all now 17 intelligence agencies, including the FBI, and a USA Patriot Act to codify into law these draconian measures that sounded like the right thing to do at the time to fight terrorism and defend us against it. But even Bush, and even Congress understood that this Patriot Act was so dangerous to us that it had to sunset after a few years. It had to expire. They gave it four years? Yeah. Yeah. It had to expire. But Congress kept renewing it and renewing it and renewing it. And the object was, we have to fight terrorism. We have mm. to protect the country. Well, after a while, the jihadists are, are essentially gone. The jihadist threat to our homeland is not not what it was because we did such a great job wiping them out around the world and bribing or, or, or destroying certain regimes that were sponsoring them. So imagine then what do bureaucracies do when they've accomplished their mission? Do they dissolve? Do they go home? Or do they look for new missions? And do they, you know, if you don't spend all your money in a federal agency at the end of the fiscal year, then Congress reduces your budget by that much the next year because obviously you don't need it. So they're looking for new reasons to 
exists. Now you combine this with the recruitment of analysts, of lawyers, of, of agents, of, of intelligence officers, coming from these schools that have been imbuing the students with critical theory. And it's all subtle. Like you don't, nobody says critical theory, nobody says cultural Marxism in the, in the courses. It's just the worldview that's being taught. That the United States is a bad country. We're so flawed. We're not an exceptional country. This is your dead white men thing. This is your Judeo-Christian heritage thing. It's all oppressive. The founders were racist. The whole premise of, of you know, Judeo-Christian principles and Greco-Roman democratic Republican traditions, this is just dead white man stuff. It's gotta go. It's repressive. See, that's the essential point. That's exactly what they're being taught, and that's exactly what we're up against right now. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, it's not the fault of the people coming in fresh out of college because this is what their parents paid for them to study, but the parents didn't know. But it didn't start in college. It went back to high school and junior high school and elementary school. Well, that's what makes this evil so hard to pin down. We talked about this a little bit before. Lenin, Russia, Stalin, you know, then on with Stalin, but... There, was, there, there were forces for evil, consolidation, power, totalitarian. They murdered tens of millions of people. We had individuals to point at, to say, these are the villains. We can get rid of them. Maybe we can change, change, the, uh, change the country, change the culture. This is an idea. This is, this is an idea that's been implanted that somehow the West is evil, um, Western civilization is evil, white people are evil. Um, you, you said it, I think, much better than I, than I just did, but this, this is really hard to combat because you're a fresh-faced kid at Yale, and this is what you're being taught. Yeah, and you want to do the right thing. Yeah. You want to go change the world or whatever, make the world a better place. If yeah. that's your goal, okay, but you think you're doing the right thing, and therefore your critics are evil people. They're Ex the enemy. Exhibit A for this, I think, is Jim Comey. Want to talk about Jim Comey and who his mentor was? So Comey, starting in college, so he started as a med student. And then For anybody had, doesn't know, Jim Comey was head of the FBI. He became head of the FBI, and right. And Trump eventually fired him, but he was also the one that went on in front of Congress to exonerate Hillary Clinton just before the election, or which backfired. But anyway, that's... It, it did, but he... he <clears throat> here's a case of of a well-meaning person. He wanted to save lives by being a doctor. Then he studied a, a uh, Protestant philosopher called Reinhold Niebuhr. And Niebuhr wanted to make the world a better place and had all this guidance for doing so under what appeared to be, it was some type of interpretation of Christian ethics. But he was a fellow traveler with Stalin's common turn. Yeah. He, he hung out with all the all the Marcusean people of the Frankfurt School. He was part and parcel of that. Whether or not he was under their control, he was part of the larger influence network. So young James Comey, the college student, wrote his, his senior paper about it. And okay, that's fine. We can't be held responsible for what we write in college, necessarily. I hope Unless not. You really, Unless you're out of the FBI, then maybe you ought to <laughs> but, get, get rid of those ideas. But he didn't get rid of them. Well, that's the thing. When he was FBI director, his Twitter handle was at Reinhold Niebuhr. 
he kept quoting Niebuhr. Obama called Niebuhr his favorite philosopher. So you can imagine Obama vetted their team very, very well, and his team vetted all the newcomers very, very well. So when he's looking for a new FBI director and he finds someone who's a Reinhold Niebuhr disciple, that's going to be a great FBI And Obama had for, studied at the knee of Frank Marshall Davis, Davis, who was a total communist and right. hated white people right? and imbued Obama with those same set of beliefs. Obama never attended a, a, a regular elementary school in America, never learned about the flag or the Constitution or civics or anything like that. He went straight to the, uh, you know, straight, straight to Mr. Uh, Davis. Right. After coming back from his madrasa in Indonesia, yeah. living in Hawaii, his grandfather said, you know, wanted somebody who could mentor this young Barry Obama who had no dad around and found this black man named Frank Marshall Davis who had a white wife. So he thought, well, this kind of combination would be great because Obama's dad was black and his mother was white. And Frank Marshall Davis mentored this young Barack Obama for 10 years until he went to college. Now, Obama wrote about him in one of his memoirs, but he only referred to him as Frank. He didn't refer to him by the full name. And you have to wonder why. The first book he referred only to Frank, and then it came out later that this was Frank Marshall Davis. Right, right. So Cliff Kincaid went and found out who it was, pulled the file, the FBI file, and you know he was a winning Soviet asset in the United States and a Communist Party member all his life. So he's shaping this young Barry Obama's worldview. So going straight from Indonesia in the madrasa to this Communist Party mentor, and then off to Occidental College. I want to be mindful of our time. You've got to go down to Congress and fix Congress this afternoon. So we'll, I want to get I want to get to our some of these action items before. But moving from the FBI, and we ended up with Comey as the director and subsequent directors. I can't comment on Chris Ray, but they have similar educational backgrounds. The CIA became political in a social, in a cultural Marxist way, the way we're using it here, and really clearly in 2012 with an executive order from uh, Barack Obama mandating diversity, so, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, so August 2011 is about the tipping point. So this is being implemented late 2011, uh, 2012. It, that was sort of the tipping point in terms of an executive order to make something happen. It was a government-wide executive order to impose DEI as a priority on all government agencies. Obama had set, up, set it up a little bit earlier, so he inherited a lot of Bush team national security people, Robert Gates, others. He had uh, General Jim Jones as his national security advisor, former Marine Corps commandant. So he had a pretty moderate national security team coming in. Within a year or two, he started purging that team, or they started attriting out, and he started putting in ideologically compatible people with, uh, with uh, General James Clapper heading up the whole 17-member intelligence community. He was a radical. Just because he had stars on his shoulder didn't mean he was not a radical. He was mm -hmm. probably the most extreme general we've seen running the whole program. And then you had a, a CIA director finally brought in 
after after Leon Panetta left, who shared that same agenda. This was John Brennan, who worked in the White House with Valerie Jarrett. He was a career CIA man. And imagine this, he was, re he was recruited into the CIA, or he enlisted and, and, and joined the CIA just a few years after voting for a Soviet asset to become president of the United States, Gus Hall, Communist Party chief. Mm -hmm. So imagine you're voting for the Communist Party to run our country, and three or four years later, you join the CIA. So this is the type of recruiting that was going on in the late 70s, early 80s. So you have the junior people trickling in at that time. They moved to upper management. So by the 90s, they're halfway through their careers. And by the early 2000s, they're senior in there. But the numbers are relatively, relatively few. But with the big hiring coming in after 9-11, you had a lot of people being brought in with these, you know, some of them were deliberately bad actors. Some didn't know what they were prone to it, and some could just, well, I just want to get along and get promoted, so I'm going to do as I'm told. So this is where the critical uh, theory and the cultural Marxism really embedded itself was this Bush-Obama period, and then it took off with a vengeance under Obama. And anybody right now can see how the FBI and the CIA are recruiting. They're only recruiting woke people. Go to at FBI jobs on Twitter, X, it's just wokeness after wokeness after wokeness in their promotional ads. Look at the CIA recruitment ads starting in 2020. Just sheer wokeness, intersectionality, uh, whatever you know, lifestyle you want, whatever gender you think. And it's not simply, well, we need different kinds of talent to work different kinds of communities and to know these things. It's simply, we are transforming the CIA and the FBI. They call themselves secret agents of change. This is not what the CIA is for. It's not what the FBI is for, right. to be agents of change. But this is what they're doing. And they did it for the first five or six years of the Obama administration, semi-secretly. And then finally went public with it after it was a done deal. So where are we today, 2024? Today we're in a situation where the, there's been such mission creep in the FBI and the CIA, so many abuses that the director, say unlike CIA director Bill Colby in the mid-70s, he came forward to Congress and said, yeah, we have a lot of problems, let me work with Congress to fix them. Bill Colby, former OSS man. Mm -hmm. Chris Ray and the FBI won't do that. He lies to Congress. He won't answer basic questions, even of a general nature. So if it's classified, he could always say, let's go into executive session and I can tell you there in a classified setting. He won't even do that. So the whole machine is, is contaminated, it's broken. But we need something like the FBI. We need, the we need a counterintelligence service. We need the functions of a counterterrorism, uh, fighting child trafficking, um, all sorts of other important things that the FBI does. But do we need an FBI the way it is? And I don't think we do. And we, it's, it can't really be fixed. It has a lot of good people in there. This drives my friends crazy when I say this because they say, well, if they are good, why don't they all come out? But we see what happens to whistleblowers when they do come out. FBI destroys them. So there are good people in there, but they, they're not free to move. And I'm glad they're still in there because there are still sane people doing their jobs. But at the same time, they're part of the problem. So if you break it up, it's like an antitrust 
situation where you have something that's gotten too big and too powerful. It doesn't mean destroy the entire enterprise and set, cast it into the winds. It means break it up into logical components that aren't going to hurt anybody anymore and then make sure that they're viable. So this is what should happen to the FBI. How would you do that? So I transfer a lot of the functions to different existing agencies. It's not an ideal solution because they're getting woke too. Well, the, well, that's most, most all 90, most of government, federal government anyway, yeah. is that way. So, but the, but the, but the principle though is to, un, to start stovepiping again or separate power so it's not concentrated. So at the very least you've accomplished in, in, in opening up to other, you know, sort of like federalism, I guess, where you got some agencies which are more effective than others and, is that, the, is that the general idea? Yeah, so we, you'd move the criminal branch of the FBI over to the U.S. Marshal Service, okay. which is our oldest law enforcement agency that was created by George Washington, and it's had the fewest scandals, so in a different ethos. So put that there, put the FBI Academy there, but under U.S. Marshal's ethos. Take the uh, national security branch and break it up so that you have a separate counterintelligence service to really go after foreign spies and the spy agencies that are targeting us, not just the fly swatting of the low-hanging fruit that we're doing right now, but really go after in a strategic way foreign spy agencies. President George W. Bush tried to do this after 9-11. He had a really great team. Friends of the Center for Security Policy were part of that team. But he, then he put FBI agents in charge of it and ruined it. But that agency is still there. So that all that function can be moved over there and, and take the cyber function and move it elsewhere. There's no ideal place for it, but there's a unit in DHS. I would say put it there just to get it out of FBI and so on. You don't need the FBI fighting drug trafficking when we have a DEA. The only real difference in what they do is the DEA also collects you know, revenues or does whatever, it has different functions, but take it out of the FBI, move to DEA, and so on, and then deal with those other problematic agencies later. So you don't have an FBI left anymore. And you can just make it go the way of the OSS. The brand is gone, too. So let's, let's imagine that we're now looking in 2025, it's February, we have a Republican president, and if it's a Republican, it's going to be Donald Trump. And um, I'm for that. And so, but Trump came into Washington in 2016 and essentially got his head handed to him by the, by, by, by the federal agencies, by the deep state, and never really penetrated into uh, any of these agencies or any of the other departments in the administration. I think he's a lot smarter about that now. And let's suppose there's a congressional majority in Congress of Republicans in the House and the, and the Senate. You would then make an issue. You would then create an issue. Say, well, let's break the FBI into these component pieces. And the and the theory is that we want to get back to an, the the ideas of a constitutional limited government, a republic, and we want to decentralize power, and we don't want all this concentrated in one hand in the federal level. And so the, the way you sell it is, is based on that big idea. Right. And you have an action plan. Because Trump came in before. He didn't have an action plan. He didn't have a unified team of people who trusted each other, let alone liked each other. Well, I'm smiling because I was in charge of writing action plans for the federal agencies. He paid no attention to it. <laughs> well, well, that was the other thing, so too. He people did, we who had did. one, but yeah. he didn't use it. It was a good one, too. <laughs> 
Okay, so you've been it was, there. So, it yeah. was superb. <laughs> well, dust it off, right? We'll dust it yeah, off. Updated okay. a bit. It's a little dated. But, but on this one, so you need, like, like, by, like Reagan did when he became president. Yeah. Like Clinton did. Like Obama did. Like Biden did. You have the executive orders pre-written. The president can implement them on day one. Yeah, I know Heritage is working on some of that. Yep. And also uh, AFPI, AFPI is working on some of that. They're, they're working away. I hope Trump takes advantage of it. Anyway, continue. Well, then, so you have the executive orders that come from the president. But yeah. then you need laws to make them so that they can't be reversed. And that's where you need the draft legislation written to match the executive orders. So that if you do get both houses of Congress, you can put those through as laws. Then you need the people pre-vetted. How do they work? Who are the ones who are who don't have higher ambitions to maybe water down what they do in hopes they get a, a, you know, a big foreign agent contract afterward or an intelligence contract after their government service or whatever else? There's that's a big problem. And not I don't know where we're going to find those people, but we can we can work on it. Yeah, wanted somebody to come to Washington who has no further ambitions except to make the country better. That's <laughs> too much to ask. It's isn't a it? lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we can, but it's a, but it's but it's an objective. If we instead of just wringing our hands, we can point towards at least breaking it up. Yes. And somewhat changing the concentration of power. Yeah. What about the CIA? CIA? Well, well, there's an even neater part of this that every citizen can have a role in. Every single voter can have a role in, and right. that is their county sheriffs. Huh. County sheriffs have a huge amount of power. A lot of them know it. Many of them don't know it. And certainly the voters don't know it. And when we vote for county sheriff every election year, do we really know who that person is that we're voting for, or is it just the party affiliation that we're voting for? So now's the time to talk to every county sheriff and every candidate for sheriff and say, what will you do to use your constitutional authority to prevent the FBI and the ATF or any other federal agency from sending agents into your county, our county, to abuse us. Sort of like Texas and our border? Exactly. Exactly. But county sheriffs have a real authority for this. And this is a couple of colleagues at the Center for Security Policy have been working on this kind of thing. It's something, it's a wonderful local level weapon that still So, so we don't to try defend. to do this, I mean, we try to do it from the top down from Washington, but you could do it at, at an individual con, uh, sheriff. Uh, how many sheriffs are there in each each state? One in every county. One in, okay, so thousands and thousands. And we work on really making this a granular movement yeah. to uh, make change. Yeah. They're elected law enforcement officers. Yeah. They have these powers to do it, and they're the eyes and ears of the FBI and the ATF and the DEA and every place else who don't have their local people crawling around. They need the local cops as well as the state and, and, uh, and, and town police. So, But the sheriffs have a special authority, and this is where asking every sheriff and candidate what they're going to do to limit the abuses of the FBI in their county and hold them to it and help those who already are predisposed. So we may not have, at least sheriffs can get voted out of office. So that's one way we can control them. Okay. What about the, what about the, the uh, CIA? Oh, the CIA is, we, we need a foreign intelligence agency. We need an agency to collect secret intelligence from abroad. But hasn't it gotten sort of weird in that if you look at China as our principal adversary, 
China has infiltrated the United States government and, and all of our institutions in a way that no, no foreign adversary ever has. And so we've got a lot of people acting on the behest, at the behest of China, whether directly on the payroll or through indirect influence. I mean, this is not just a surveillance of foreign actors, but it's we got to sort of watch what's going on here, uh, here in D.C., and that's another problem if you have FISA. So, Mike, I other... want a solution to that problem. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> try... a, that may be another book. <laughs> We're just trying to start a discussion with the book. Okay, and well, with let's, here. Let's, but, let's get the dialogue yeah. going. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, think of it. I mean, going back to the OSS, and it's in Big Intel a little bit, you had communist agents inside the OSS yeah. actively helping Mao Zedong when he was still a guerrilla in the mountains. Yeah. Actively helping stop the gold shipments to Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist government. We took sides in that in that war for on Mao's side and against Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it was communist infiltration of the OSS, which was providing the secret intelligence. So you had Stalinist agents advising us what to do. General Stilwell, some great, you know, military leaders, all the way up to the presidents, you know, Roosevelt and especially Truman, and, and afterward. So... So it's really deep-seated. But when you had, you know, the CIA did not predict the rise of communist China as a peer military competitor to us. Even the open source data was being reported. Lots of our friends, right, you've had on, on here in this, at this table yeah. were writing about this in the 1980s and 1990s. CIA yeah. didn't do it. Yeah. So if they're not collecting <clears throat> and analyzing because of whatever limitations and biases they have, and the presidents aren't getting unvarnished intelligence, even if it's, you know, if it has a different uh, uh, spin on it or perspective to it. That's the whole thing with good intelligence. You have people with different opinions bringing in all their perspectives. You don't have that. So, you, you, so our leaders aren't able to predict what's happening. And then all of a sudden, oh, look what the Chinese are doing to us. Where, where did that come from? So the big idea is you don't need a big CIA that's using open source intelligence. You can use a much smaller, leaner, and meaner group of people that have true uh, top secret insights into what's going on. Plus, you got to rebuild your human intelligence component. Didn't, didn't we shut that down, the spies in the field and that sort of thing? And we need to get back into old-fashioned intelligence gathering where you've got people... You know, cloak and dagger, where you're, you got people in the field working for you. Yeah, and that was two generations or more ago. And we're not so doing under, much of that now. Under Jimmy Carter, it was being shut down. Yeah, in, good in, old in, Jimmy. For, but never really rebuilt. And yeah. the way the, the the personnel system works in the CIA is, you can't have someone who has deep roots in a certain country and gets to know the leaders and the families and the business sector and the party apparatus. You don't have that anymore because that's not a way you get recruited or, or, or promoted. It's you become stagnant, or you get what what's called clientitis. So mm -hmm. there is a danger of you identify so much with the community you're living in that you forget you're American. So there's that danger, but there's also the danger of not being embedded the way the British had been in the British Empire. We lack that, and then having pretty poor counterintelligence capabilities of our own. We don't think the way our enemies think, so we don't understand them and what they do, and we don't understand what we see and what we hear. So we've concluded, I think, that this is a big problem. We've got a few solutions, but we need more people in the game helping us to figure out how to 
restore freedom and the good old constitutional limited government that we uh, that made the country so great. Uh, but we're up against it. Big time. Imagine when the FBI doesn't believe in limited government anymore because power comes from the center. It doesn't come from the people. Yeah. The CIA doesn't believe in limited government. It sort of believes in unlimited to the point that it can flagrantly break the law and get involved in our elections and that its people break the law literally every day by leaking classified material to the press every single day, never prosecuted for it. So these are states within a state that are evolving. So the, the primacy of the ind individual is viewed as a quaint, archaic idea when really we all know it's better to have security than freedom because we all have to be safe and the government's going to be here to make everybody safe. Well, normally I like to have a line of action. I think our line of action is just to educate people about what's really happening. And the, and the book's a great start, but it, it's a big intractable problem. And I, you got a great blurb here from uh, Tucker Carlson who read the book, and, I, and you talked with him through the creation of it. And he writes... Uh, what if you combine the dark anti-human politics of the academic left with the unfettered power and impenetrable, impenetrable secrecy of the national security state? You'd have pretty much what we have now. <laughs> he, he nailed it with that. He did oh, nail it, but yeah. I think you've nailed it in a much, much bigger way. This is really worth um, digging into more, so we'll have you back. We'll get some other people here. We'll, uh, next time we'll be filled with solutions. Uh, anyway, Mike, Mike Waller, thanks. Author of Big Intel, uh, highly recommended. Uh, I don't have people on here with books that I don't recommend, so this is one that I think that should be on your library shelf after reading it thoroughly. Uh, this has been the Bill Walton Show, and as you know, you can find us on all the major podcast platforms and on YouTube, Rumble, uh, Substack. Uh, uh, we're also obviously on our own website, thebillwaltonshow.com. Please subscribe to the show. Ask your friends to subscribe to the show. If you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble, hit the like button. Those are very helpful for the algorithms. And um, we'll be back with a lot more like this. And we'll be back with Mike Waller. Um, he's got to head off this afternoon to go fix Congress. And so we'll let him do that. And you'll come back with a good story, I'm sure. So, Mike, thank you. And thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining. <laughs>